by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Welcome to Think Sustainability. I am Miles Herbert. Today on the show, why plankton might make good pets. We want people to love these, what we're calling marmix, marine microbes. I think we might even call marmix names. We might say, well, you can, you know, click on Bert and see where Bert's going today. More on that later. First, as global sea temperatures continue to rise, our coral reefs are turning from thriving marine ecosystems into underwater graveyards. But scientists might have discovered a set of coral superheroes who might save the day. How did you guys name them, the super corals? Like, how did you guys get that? <laughs> I'm sure there must have been a drink involved. It must have happened in the pub. This is Associate Professor David Suggett from the University of Technology, Sydney. In 2016, David went on an expedition to a remote lagoon system in New Caledonia and discovered a brand new community of corals which are adapting to thrive under extreme conditions. These corals live in hot, acidic, and low oxygenated waters, conditions scientists are predicting to increase as global warming continues to affect our oceans. And because these corals are so resilient to the rising sea temperatures, Dave started calling them super corals. We call them super corals, yeah. I mean, they, they are super in every shape and form because they are living right on the edge under conditions that if we run laboratory experiments, we take a coral from the reef and we grow it under future temperatures, pH, oxygen, they typically die. So all of this has fueled our perception that corals won't survive into the future. Now, if we look into these natural extremes, we see a lot of corals surviving, coral diversity, coral cover. So it's giving us clues that, that maybe our laboratory experiments haven't been quite as accurate as, as we thought. However, that's not to say that we don't have a problem, but it's that we've perhaps been looking in the wrong place. Well, where did we find them if we were looking in the wrong place? Where did you, where did you discover them? <laughs> well, they, they typically uh, live in fringing mangroves. So what, what happens is that the mangrove uh, vegetation conditions the water, makes it very hot because it's shallow, um, but also all the organic matter makes it very acidic. Now, the reason we don't typically go looking in mangroves for corals is because it's where all the crocodiles, box jellies, sharks... Everything that you, you kind of want to avoid when you're diving on a reef tends to live in the mangrove. So you, you've really got to be brave enough. What's really interesting as well is that these mangrove systems have, have typically been perceived as, as low, low value for corals because the corals just don't look as pretty. So were these corals always there or have we just hadn't seen them yet? That's a, that's a great question. And that's really what's fueling our research is how did they evolve to survive under those conditions? When did they arrive do they maintain plasticity? You know, once we start putting them out onto a, a normal reef, do they just lose their superpowers? Or, or do they maintain some sort of strength and, and resilience? So we've literally only just made these, these discoveries. So these super corals, this giant discovery, how yeah. are we using them to, you know, help reef restoration? Yeah, that's really what we're interested in at the moment. So 
The bottom line is is that there's some great new evidence that's hot off the press that shows that we can grow corals effectively on the Great Barrier Reef. Okay, Now, that's whether we take all the eggs and sperm, we hoover it up, and we basically artificially inseminate the reef. Okay, So we fast-track recovery. And there's some great evidence, as I said, recently showing that that's successful. But there's no point doing that if it's just really weedy corals and the next heat wave comes along, they, they stress out again. So what we want to ask is whether we can take these super corals and apply it to these really innovative husbandry techniques to say, well, can we start seeding the reef with much more stress-resilient populations? Would those stress-resilient populations help the populations that are still there? Correct, yeah. So they would supplement the existing populations. So what you don't want to do is completely flood the reef with one single type of of organism. That makes no sense whatsoever. But you want to maintain a certain amount of diversity. So the idea is using the super coral populations to just help supplement the, the background. How would they protect the other reefs? Well, by maintaining their footprint on the reef, okay, they stop all the other organisms from, from out-competing. So the things that like to take over a reef when you have an impact, like soft corals, algae, then if you have hard corals maintained there, they can keep that footprint and enable fast-track recovery through, through other populations. And so it means we also need other populations of coral surviving the, the stress event. Yeah, you keep saying fast-track. How immediate yeah. would this be? Well... I guess to to give you an example that the most recent work that was performed up on the Southern Great Barrier Reef last year by taking all of this eggs and sperm and fertilizing the reef, they're already seeing immense coral cover within, you know, a year. So you can implement these tools in in a certain way to to fast track. And and I guess fast track doesn't necessarily mean just the time frame, but also the scale. So do you just have one or two new recruits coming in or do you have thousands? And and that's the difference. Has there been any pushback these corals don't look as pretty Mm -hmm. is are there any pushback around those lines or a pushback on other lines scientific lines not really i mean there's i suppose that the purists would argue that we shouldn't be tinkering with the ecology i mean that's that that's probably the greatest pushback in a sense is is the discussion amongst the scientific community and the stakeholders as to just how far we should be perhaps artificially manipulating the communities now the flip side is that we we don't expect these interventions these aggressive management tools to be a solution it's really there to buy us time until we can solve the real problem which is climate change yeah and that that real problem that you're kind of elephant mm-hmm. in the room climate change yeah. i think it's pretty common knowledge we're not doing a great job of curbing emissions and temperatures continue to rise and sea temperatures continue to rise can this be like you said an alternative to maybe curbing emissions that we can protect the reef even though our sea temperatures are rising Definitely not an alternative because one of the one of the dangers is if we simply focus on alternative aggressive interventions, it, it sort of gives license then for governance to say, well, let's not worry about climate change because we have other tools. So it's it, we have to be very very careful with the kind of messages we we put out with these tools, and we do see them very much as a supportive tool rather than a solution. In your research, have you seen these super corals interacting in the Great Barrier Reef, and how, how has that looked? That's a really great question. So we're, we're part of an expedition at the moment that is exploring the northern Great Barrier Reef, which was most heavily impacted by the 2016-2017 bleaching. About 50% of all corals has died. So what this expedition is doing is looking for the survivors. What is very clear from this expedition is that there are patches of reef that are okay, if not good, but there's a lot of reef that's absolutely destroyed. But there's seeds of hope. We're seeing some colonies survive. So the question is, are these colonies some of our super corals? And how connected to the mangroves, perhaps, are they? 
How do you distinguish between a super coral and like how do you make that decision? You said they might be a part of a super coral. Like, how is that? How do you yeah. determine that? Yeah, it's it's kind of like how do you define a super coral? And, and yet at the moment we we still don't know if it's something that is genetically hardwired. So are there populations that you know just have super genes? Or are there parts of the population that are so flexible that when you move them across sites, you know, they can display their superpowers or they can ramp them down? So, again, this expedition at the moment is the first expedition where we're probing the genes, we're probing the physiology to try and tease the two apart. And if we had those genes, what would we do with them? Well, the genes give us the clues as to how corals need to survive. There's also a a lot of research and institutions are trying to accelerate evolution of corals by subjecting them to stresses and perhaps tinkering with their genes to make them even more super. So if we can understand the genes that corals need to survive, it it, it really gives us the clues as to what a corals need to do to evolve, um, whether that's naturally or through artificial selection. When I read about the Great Barrier Reef and I read about corals, I... I mean, it's kind of depressing. 50% of the corals have died. I feel like it's a pretty depressing narrative. Is this something that we can maybe kind of get excited about? Absolutely. And and to be honest, I, I think you sort of have to get a little bit depressed in a sense. I, I don't quite mean it like that, but you have to see it to believe it is more what I mean. It's very confronting when you're used to seeing and working on a beautiful reef and you go up to a a monolithic graveyard, which is what a lot of reef sites are looking like. So you you sort of need that to give you the motivation and the encouragement. So what amazes me is that we've only just made these discoveries about super corals. You know, we have been looking in the wrong place. So the the question I raise in, in my mind and to my team is what else have we missed? And Actually, there is optimism out there. And and the more we find survivors, the more optimistic we can become to develop some of these tools. We've talked a lot about the Great Barrier Reef, but obviously the bleaching of corals and climate change is not just an Australian problem. Is this research into super corals maybe something that can expand outside of the Great Barrier Reef and and kind of help coral restoration worldwide? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, that's where this work actually first started. We, We discovered super coral sites in Seychelles, Indonesia, and then New Caledonia. And then sort of the penny dropped is why have we not looked on the Great Barrier Reef? Part of the reason is that the the other mangrove sites we've looked at around the world and until now, you know, they don't have crocodiles, for example. So it was a lot easier for us to go exploring. So that's been one of our challenges is just how, how far into the coast. But we're now using innovative tools and technology, drones, ROVs, to explore the coastline of Australia much more. But you're absolutely right. Is Mangroves are a natural part of all coral reefs. It's the continuum from the land to the sea. So if we're finding them everywhere we look, we, we've just got to actually get in the water a lot more and discover these sites. And what about the next big heat wave? When is that due? Oh, if, if only we knew. You know, the, the best models tell us that the heat waves are increasing in frequency and severity. We generally know from keeping an eye on the climate about six months in advance if we're likely to have a big heat wave event. This year, because of the La Nina, it looks like the water is cooling. So this year, we, we hope it looks like a reprieve. But that doesn't mean that the, the year after won't be as bad. Are you kind of in a race to get these super corals into the reef before the next heat wave? Ideally, yeah. I mean, that, that's why next year is so exciting. So I, I guess what I re- really want to say is, uh, come back to the point of, of, of optimism. It's, it's really important we don't lose hope. And, and it really is not a hopeless case. We, we are finding survivors, whether you look on the main reef or into the mangroves where we have our super corals. We just have to find the right and the best tools to actually use th- this optimistic message that we're generating. Associate Professor David Suggett ending that story. 
This is Think Sustainability from 2SCR 107.3 and the Community Radio Network. I am Miles Herbert. Coming up after the break, how data visualization is helping the public connect with the hidden and unseen life forms in the ocean. Welcome back to Think Sustainability. I'm Miles Herbert. Martina Doblin from the University of Technology, Sydney, is asking the public to come with her on an underwater journey with drifting microscopic plankton to help build a global picture of how the organisms are affected by changes in ocean conditions. These microscopic organisms play a hugely important role in our ecosystem. Not only do they fuel the underwater food chain, but it is estimated that over 90% of the world's oxygen is produced by marine plankton. And in turn, these small and diverse organisms keep us alive. Martina has spent her entire career looking at microscopic plankton under a microscope and is excited the public will finally get a chance to see the underwater species that has such a large impact on our oceans up close. We want to give people a view of how plankton change as they experience different parts of the ocean. So they're drifting in surface currents and being pushed from essentially the tropics to the poles or vice versa, from the poles to the tropics in different ocean currents. And along their journeys, they experience very different conditions. We can't be in the ocean to look at the plankton in all these places. So what we're doing is visualising them based on our laboratory experiments and some of our ocean data. And the visual interface is the best way to kind of summarise many, many things that may be changing ecologically for those organisms. But it's a great entry point for citizens to get involved and understand the challenge of living in the ocean. Why plankton? Why did you choose plankton? It's principally, I researched the microscopic end of of organisms. Um, So thankfully, they're a bit easier to visualise than potentially whales, but some people could argue (laughs) differently. But um, the microscopic world is incredibly diverse and hence it has a lot of unanswered questions. These are the unseen, hidden organisms of the ocean and really the visual aspect of that also makes it so engaging because you need technical and scientific tools to observe um, those forms of life. And what kind of questions are these visualizations trying to answer then? The main reason that we're using visualization is it can quickly summarize, a picture tells a thousand words, all the things that are going on in those plankton as they're experiencing those different environments. So not only is it a very engaging way for citizens to get the insight, but for me personally, I can tell a lot from an image as opposed to a bunch of numbers in a table or plots you know, that are static. And the real innovation that we have going on is that traditionally our view of the ocean has been very much from where the human is in the centre of the frame and we're monitoring change in the ocean at one site, for example, because that happens to be where the temperature sensor or the velocity meter is. But we're turning it around and saying, well, the plankton are the organisms that matter here. They drive ocean nutrient cycling. They are responsible for the balance of the gas mixture in the atmosphere. So they take up carbon dioxide and they 
release oxygen and they make the planet habitable for people uh, and for many other organisms. So we wanted them to be the centre of the frame and that means that we have to move with them in the ocean. And the visualisation is a really effective way for us to take that journey with them. What do the visualisations look like? Well, we'll we'll probably build them from a really detailed three-dimensional imaging and videography that we do of these cells as they're growing in different environments in the laboratory. The visualisation that the citizen science will see will take the form of it will be an internet-based platform and it will be probably a three-dimensional virtual environment where we actually see plankton tumbling through a volume of um, space and people will be able to turn them and use particular quantifiable rules, if you like, to explore how those individual cells are changing in response to their conditions. I imagine you look at plankton under a microscope a lot. Is it cool? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, look, uh, they... They're really fun to watch because um, they, they kind of have little personalities. So some twirl, some kind of um, spin around, some kind of jet to one place and then change direction really fast and then jet to another place. And there's an awful lot that happens in that sort of tiny volume of, of a droplet of seawater. And when you magnify the number of droplets in the ocean – you know, there's an incredible amount of activity that happens that we just don't perceive. How similar are the visualizations to that moment of you looking through the microscope? We we hope we can get a very realistic visualization so that we're rendering organisms in in their natural form. So we have actually engaged an illustrator to help us do that. So that genuineness really makes it a very, um, not only a sophisticated visualisation, but an authentic one. Are you excited to have citizens see these things for maybe the first time? Oh, yeah, that's that's always great, you know, especially when they're people that I may not be sitting in a room with. They may be, I was going to say from planet Mars, but we're, we're not quite there, but um, they could be sitting in Samoa or somewhere looking at this information and helping us sort through it to understand how ocean processes will change. And that, for me, bringing that sort of thing to to people outside a university space and even into the lounge rooms of people with an internet connection is super exciting uh, because it extends our reach and and it allows me to uh, help bring some... Um, ocean in, into those uh, people's lives and um, for me to share those experiences. Do you think this will help people understand the unknowns of the ocean? Yes, I mean, that, that is the idea, that we're, we're revealing it to the public. It's a frontier. Um, it's a, a frontier not only of visualisation but of, of scientific discovery. A little bit like you can imagine when the first pictures of the Titanic emerged from the submersible cameras that James Cameron took down to the bottom of the ocean. So it's going to be as entertaining as James Cameron's the Titanic? <laughs> we hope. <laughs> the microbial world is fascinating. I mean, these are not pets you can keep necessarily, although that probably is much more feasible than we might think. 
But you can, um, have, you can have like a, you can have pet microbes. Yes, you just add a little <laughs> bit of nutrients to seawater, and they can keep growing. Uh, how do they, are they good pets? Yeah, well, look, it depends on whether you want to pat something furry, right? But um, I I know many people who are allergic to dander in in um, dogs and cats, right? So <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, but look, yeah, we we want to. We we want people to love these what we're calling marmics, um, marine microbes, because eventually they'll be able to 3D print these planktonic forms that they've had the experience of of undergoing a journey with, and that's a really nice way to to give people a sense of what these organisms are that they can hold them in their hand, and the emotional part I think will be that. Well, imagine if you were on this journey with them and you died on that journey, you know. That is absolutely an outcome that happens in the ocean every day because these organisms simply don't have the physiology to withstand those massive changes in temperature, for example. And uh, and then maybe that will actually create uh, not only increased awareness but just an understanding about the dynamics of life in the ocean. So I think we might even call marmics names. We might say, well, you can, you know, click on Bert and see where Bert's going today. But ultimately, that is a very personal and emotional experience for people. Um, and we want them to eventually, with their 3D printed marmics, not only just have that as an outcome of their own experience, but be able to teach and talk to others about about it, so they become the scientists in that way, and and we feel that that's the very powerful way that people can be transformed by their participation. How tied do you think our futures on this planet and our futures in the ocean are to planktons and marmots? Very closely linked, right? So I suppose that's what drives my motivation to understand essentially how the ocean will fundamentally change in its function. So ocean health and human health are closely coupled. So I really love that something so small can have such a profound impact on humans and that we have to respect that if we treat the ocean like a big dumping ground or something that has infinite capacity to soak up plastic and so forth, we will actually make ourselves sick. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. This show was produced on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between 2SCR 107.3, the University of Technology Sydney, and Heard Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today was our last show of the year. Thank you to everyone who tuned in, and thanks for hanging out with me as I filled in for regular producer Jake Morcom. You can catch up on past episodes on iTunes or your favorite download app, or just go to 2SCR.com and search for Think Sustainability. Jake and I will catch you guys again next year. 